I love that story of the production of West Side Story when they couldn't find the gun at the end when he had to come on. So the guy ran on. The guy ran on and shouted, "Poison boot!" and, then, and kicked him to and kicked Tony to death. I don't know if that's true or not, but I freaking hope, hope it is because yeah. that that is the ultimate gone wrong story for me. Like. Hello everyone and welcome to the National Theatre Podcast. I'm Sam Sedgman and I'll be your host, your tour guide through the trapdoors and tripwires of theatrical disaster. Because today we are talking about things going wrong, the mishaps, the mistakes, the catastrophes and how we recover from them. It often feels like too much of life is focused on perfection, that we should all be striving constantly to achieve a state of being that's completely flawless in every way. But you know what? Life isn't like that. It's never perfect. We all make mistakes and the world of theatre is no exception. So today we wanted to celebrate failures, to share with you some tales of mishaps and calamities, to show that even award-winning professionals at the top of their game have bad days at the office. At the top of the show, you heard the cast of Our Ladies of Perpetual Sucker sharing one of their favourite urban legends of disaster striking the stage. We spoke to them last time for our episode about the Edinburgh Fringe, and today we are revisiting some of our other favourite contributors from the series so far. Harriet Walter, Cush Jumbo, Don Warrington and plenty more are back and telling us about some of their favourite catastrophes. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is theatre. How bad can things get? It's not like we're talking about brain surgery or air traffic control. And yes, you are right. The world of theatre is a world of make-believe. But I am always, always fascinated by theatre makers' ability to construct situations for themselves that I would never want to be in. Like Rob Drummond whose story is about a show where a volunteer audience member is required to shoot him in the head with a real gun, while his mum is watching. My original volunteer refused to shoot me. So I was panicking at this point. We'd not worked out what to do if the show didn't work, if, if they wouldn't shoot me. Just so to I, give some context here, this is Bullet sorry, Catch. This is Bullet Catch, the show in which an audience member comes up on stage and volunteers to, to, to be my assistant in the magic show of shooting me in the head and I catch the bullet in my teeth. So my current assistant on that night wouldn't shoot me. So my mum, I said, mum, could you please help me with this? Because she was in the audience anyway and I'd already spoken to her. She was a character in the room. So she came up, took the gun and she turned round and aimed it at my father's head in the audience and mimed shooting my dad. Now, of course, it undermines the whole show if I laugh at that. Because it's a real weapon she's got in her hand that could do serious damage. Forget the fact it's a magic trick. It could genuinely have done serious damage. So I leapt on her, put her hand in, went, Mum, you cannot do that. Take this seriously. So she took the huff, not liking to be told off in front of a room full of people. And she said, well, I'm not doing it then. And she sat down. So I had to find a third person to come up on stage and shoot me. And at that point, a big menacing, brooding figure called Alan McKendrick, a friend of mine, his voice comes from the back of the room, I'll do it, Drummond. And he comes down onto the stage like some sort of spectre of death, <laughs> takes the gun, points it at me and goes, so it's come to this, has it, Drummond? And he has no problem pulling the trigger. Um, so that was a unique show where we had three shooters on stage and the audience was all over the place, not knowing whether or not this was planned or whether it was 
meant to be comic comedic or or whether they should really be scared for their own safety and let me tell you they should have been <laughs> this was the third performance of bullet catch i think and yeah. watching it from the back row of traverse 2 i started to see everything that we'd been working on in rehearsal for the past three or four weeks falling apart <laughs> this is david overend the director of the show it was an awful scary moment and by the time that mckendrick offered his assistance to shoot rob i realized that the audience were so excited and so into it and I thought hang on this is what we're trying to do with this theatre is create the conditions for failure to create the conditions for things to go wrong and for unpredictable events to invade the fabric of the performance text and that's what we've been trying to cultivate ever since if you come out of a show and you haven't been scared for your own life it wasn't a good night at the theatre I mean you said it but I'm not disagreeing (laughs) there's got to be an element of risk When you're doing the same thing night after night, something's bound to go wrong eventually. Some risk, as David says, is unavoidable. But I don't want you to think that the backstage world is some kind of anarchy. This isn't Mad Max. There are an awful lot of people whose job it is to minimise those risks and to make sure that everything goes according to plan. I'm Andrew Speed. I'm a stage manager and um, I look after whichever shows are pushed my way by the National Theatre. And how long have you been here now? 27 years. And tell us briefly what a stage manager does. What are, what are you responsible for? Basically, uh, you are there to help the creatives realise um, the vi- their vision of the show on stage. So you schedule all the rehearsals you know, very closely with the staff director and the director. You make sure that the calls are correct, that the actors turn up for the scenes that are meant to, to actually happen. It's, it's very much a sort of... Um, people-pleasing operation for the first few six weeks of rehearsal. Um, When you get into tech, that's where the business really starts. You make sure that during the technical rehearsal, which is basically when the technicians get their hands on the play, when the sound finally gets fed in, when the lights get put on the stage, you're physically in costume um, and you're actually putting the nuts and bolts of the whole piece together to have a sort of a unified play, then uh, it's your job to make sure that all happens. Obviously, very closely with the production manager who's seen the the build of the set so you are very much pivotal at that stage and you're the conduit in which everything flows and you have to like sisyphus and his boulder keep pushing it up the hill however many times it rolls down and realize that first preview how much of your job is dealing with things going wrong and handling the unexpected Speaking Hello. of the unexpected. I'm terribly sorry. I'm doing a podcast at the moment. Can I call you back? Okay, thank you. I'm being recorded at the moment on a podcast. Bye. <laughs> so what was that about the unexpected? Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, um, also, it's my job as a stage manager to tell everyone to turn off their phone before they do anything. <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> so back to the question. How much of your job is dealing with the unexpected and things going wrong? Well, not that much. Because when a show is really rocking and really good and everyone's on the top of their game, machinery is behaving, the actors are behaving, and, you know, and the gods are smiling on you, basically you do show after show after show which absolutely hits the mark, Mm. the people come having paid their money, 
and it's all fine. And then every so often there are curveballs and you are like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. I mean, part of our job is to look at um, all the possibilities that can go wrong, but you can't legislate for everything. Part of the thrill of seeing something live is the idea of how many people have worked to bring the thing you're seeing to life. And in part of your mind, the knowledge that all it would take is for one small thing to come unstuck to snap you out of it. Things go wrong a lot of the time. This is Don Warrington talking to us about playing King Lear at the Royal Exchange in Manchester. In King Lear, there would be nights when, you know, in the storm scene, I think, well, I've no idea what I'm going to say now. Um, so you you find a way. I've tried to make up Shakespeare, um, and and the, the terrible thing the terrible thing was. I looked around, there was a man with the book. <laughs> and I thought, what can I do if I make it up? He's going to know. Well, in the audience? With yes, the book. yes. Not the prompt. No, 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 no. <laughs> there was a man in the audience sitting there in the front row reading the script as I was doing it. Why would you come to a play and read along? Well, that's what I thought. It's happening there yeah. in front of you. Yeah, that's what I thought. And it really upset me because I was so self-conscious of every word. Consequently... I forgot halfway through, and I thought, I'll just say the line again, and I said it again, and then, you know, there was a kind of pause, and it came to me, and he kept looking down at his book and looking up at me, and I'm convinced that he thought, oh, this is, this is how this production have decided to do it, you know, because nobody knows, nobody knows until they've, nobody knows what the intentions are. You know, you can do anything. And people will go, well, if that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. You know, I may not like it, but it's what they want to do. So, yeah, there are, there, there are always moments when I think, oh, I cannot remember a line. But you said you tried to make up Shakespeare. Yeah. How? I don't know how. In the moment you do anything. <laughs> you just sort of go, thee and thou, yeah. and blum dum dee lum Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Make some no. up now. I can't. I'm not, in this, I'm not panicked. <laughs> I'm all right here. No, you can't make it up just now. It's when the whole thing's going on, you know, and you know that queue's waiting on you. You've got to do something, you know. And also people are very kind. Sometimes an actor can look at you and think, oh, he's in trouble. I'll get him out of it. I've done it. I've seen an actor dry. And, uh, you know, um, you've helped them out. You've, you've found a way of bringing them back to where they should be. Like, perhaps you'd like to ask me how I'm feeling. Well, maybe a little subtler than that. Yeah. That's why I'm not an actor. <laughs> you know, but, but even that works because the audience don't know. You know, even when they're reading the play, they think, oh, they made a cut. <laughs> we cut Shakespeare all the time. Mm. Have to, it's so long. Oh, yeah. It's not made for theatres now. No, I know people didn't have much to do in the evenings, I guess. So yeah. he kept them busy. Thank you so much for sharing that story. A pleasure. You must get actors going off script a lot. Either intentionally or accidentally. Oh, yes. That must be a horrible feeling when you're there and you've got this script in front of you that is the roadmap for how the evening is supposed to go Mm -hmm. and someone has gone 
way off the path and there's nothing you can do to get them back well you can you you can you can give them a line um just shout I, the line i've i've done that but we did um the david hare trilogy in the olivier theater years ago and ollie ford davis who was absolutely brilliant um uh he won awards for his portrayal of lionel in the racing demon he had a few smaller parts in the second play which was uh, murmuring judges and um, because he had a massive you know the first show was 10 30 in the morning and he was basically the lead in that so his his roles in the second play were you know slightly smaller to give him a bit of a rest and he played one one prison officer in one scene right okay mckinnon come in stand here take your clothes off right this that whatever bloody blah and um he had he had a clipboard with him but one morning it went uh, he just, you know, he just went out of his brain. So uh, he went, line. We called the line, carried on, stopped again, gave him the line again, went, wait there, McKinnon. And he walked over to the book and he tore the page with the scene out, out of the book, stuck it on his clipboard and walked back on stage. And I thought, now that is really an actor taking a prompt. Physically took it out of the book. But, you know, he's a brilliant actor and he only did it the once. But, you know, I mean, we can all have mental aberrations. I have them all the time <laughs> yeah like everyone has those days where they come in and they're just not feeling their job but it rarely happens that you're in front of a thousand people well a few more in the only <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that was that was uh that was extraordinary actually it's no wonder actors have trouble with their words sometimes they have to memorize them and remember them night after night but guys even if you have the script right in front of you reading your lines can still be a challenge trust me i know right Am I good to go? Great. But first, one notable excla- <laughs> But first, one notable excla- <laughs> I can't say exploration. Shut up! Stop it! <laughs> Laughing at me through that glass. But first, one notable excla- <laughs> <laughs> Shit, what's wrong with me? <laughs> I think I've written it slightly wrong and my head's making me go explode or something. Exploration. I'll nail it, don't worry. But first, one notable exploration. Oh, fuck! What's wrong with me? I'm possessed. One notable exploration. Exploration. It's a hard word to say. Thanks to Emma, our producer, for recording that. Thank God you didn't delete it. That would have been awful. Look, we all have blunders, some of them more public than others. But you know what? Sometimes a mistake live on stage isn't the end of the world. Here's Chakwudi Awuji. I remember when I was in drama school, my uh, one of my... Um, I, I worked for the American Players Theatre in America as part of... I, it was great because I was in school, but I was getting credit working professionally. And one of the productions we did was uh, Much Ado About Nothing. And I was playing uh, Don Pedro. And Jimmy DeVita, who's a great, wonderful actor, was doing Benedict. And Claudia and I um, come on stage to make fun of him in the shaving scene. And Claudio, this actor next to me, just can't stop giggling and it's clearly off script he's like giggling I was like what the hell's going on here because I'm, I'm one for a joke on stage but this was like the guy could not breathe giggling and 
finally, Jimmy, who's playing Benedict, is, is like, what's wrong with this guy? Do you know what I mean? And then finally, um, he points, Claudio points at, at Jimmy's crotch. And he was shaving. There's a white foam patch of shaving from right on his crotch. I mean, white. And the whole audience of 1,200 people, whatever it was, had seen it. And they were trying not to notice that. That was the white. And I saw it. And talk about not dealing with it well. I just burst out laughing. And Jimmy went red, looked down, saw it, and held his hands over his crotch. And the whole house lost it. It took us about six minutes to get the scene back together <laughs> because we tried to start and there'd be another wave of laughter. That's an example of when something's gone wrong, but it's actually made the show better. That would be that the day. best performance I ever saw. No one would, no one is going to forget the night that happened. And the applause at the end of the night, the applause at the end of the night was, it brought tears to your eyes because you were like, oh yeah, remember, we're all in this together. Liveness is that we're all, is not you have an effect on what happens here and we have an effect on you there. So that was a happy example of how something going wrong heightened, you know, the experience that can only happen in live theatre. I love this story. But there's a time and a place for laughter. You can't have a cast of actors in fits of giggles when they're supposed to be doing something serious. Have you ever had that uncontrollable urge to laugh at the worst possible moment? Actors get it too. Here's Simon Russell Beale telling a story about a show he was in with Alex Jennings and Leslie Manville. I don't know what, apparently it was me. I said something obscene before we went on. And the three of us went on to do, and we started the scene, started the whole play eating breakfast, these three cr criminals. And um, so it was a blackout, we came on, and then the lights came up, and we were supposed to eat breakfast. And then we started this huge argument, you know, fart in your face and all that. And apparently I said something in the blackout. And um, the three of us, it was awful. My, my mum was the first line. And I knew if I looked up at Alex, or if I looked up at... Let's I'd just laugh. We were supposed to be having this huge argument. And there was that awful feeling about, we'll never start this play. We just stood there. We just sat there. So the lights are on and yeah. everyone's waiting for your yeah, first cue and you just can't do yeah. it. How do you get out of that corpsing situation? Well, I don't know. I think you just have to go right, oh, for God's sake, and just shout something at, at Alex without looking at him. You just can't catch people's eyes. And Richard Bryars, bless him, in London Assurance, who had a line right at the end of the play, which was, with the whole company, like this, the plays that always end up with the whole company. I married for love, because it's all about marrying for love or marrying for money. I married for love, and you see how happy it made me. This was his last line. Instead of which, he said, I married for money. I'm Sorry, I married for love, and you see how funny it made me. <laughs> which was such a giveaway. And there were 20 people on stage. I want to know if you've ever encountered uncontrollable giggling. Giggling, I mean, corpsing, as it's known in the industry. It's legion and it's very naughty. Yes, Simon Rossabeel was telling us how he was working on uh, something in the Cottesloe, I think, and they just couldn't start the show because they were all uh, in fits of laughter. Well, si Simon, um, I've done quite a bit with Simon. I did Simon's World Tour of Hamlet, and um, that was quite extraordinary. Uh, but the story I, I wanted to tell was when he decided to walk backwards on Candide. Uh, I think it was Trevor's first um, season here. Trevor Nunn, he's the former director of the National Theatre. And they put together um, this, what are they called, where all the actors are together? Ensemble. It was an ensemble company. So uh, I did Troilus and Cressida, 
and I think with Troilus and Cressida was was um, Condit, and I guessed it on Condit because you know we moved around a bit, and um, there's this bit he sort of played the narrator. And, you know, Simon's brilliant at that stuff. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor and singer. And uh, there's this one bit where he's telling the story about the journey that uh, Candide went on. And he decided, I don't know why, to walk backwards round this circular edge of the stage. And he fell off and landed in the audience and on this woman's lap. Well, we thought, you know, fair enough, Simon, you learnt your lesson there. And then about four shows later, he tried it again, and exactly the same result. So um, I think he's improved his walking backwards now. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, having done it once, you wouldn't think you'd go for it again, but he did. Simon's not the only person to have had trouble staying in the right place on stage. Here's Harriet Walter, proving that even dames have bad days. Oh, Lady Macbeth, yes, now there's a thing. Um... We had a sort of power surge in the middle of Macbeth, the young Vic, and we had sort of spiral staircase going up the side. I had to run up the stairs in a long dress carrying two knives and um, run up a spiral staircase. And the lights went, and there was a sort of runway thing between the bottom of the stairs and back on stage. And I wondered why it had gone all soft and spongy and I realised I was walking on the audience's knees with my two knives. <laughs> um, <laughs> How did you get out of that one? I think I probably muttered sorry. It was probably came completely out of character. Um, <laughs> you win, that's the best one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Actors getting into trouble on stage is one thing, but sometimes actors can't even go on at all. We've all had times in our lives when we've had to find someone to fill in for us at the last minute, and there's only a very small number of people who can do the job. When a play loses one of its most important actors, you've got to do some quick thinking. Here's theatre director Cora Bissett. I directed a show called Glasgow Girls, which was a, a, a kind of big, bold musical about a group of teenage girls who fought for the rights of their friends who were being deported. Um, and it was one uh, weekday matinee. I think it was a 10 o'clock show. And uh, I got a phone call from the stage manager about uh, 9, 9.15 that morning. And I, I was in my bed. I, I was knackered. And I was like, OK, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a long light today. And they said, all right, Cora, one of our girls is down. Um we need you to come to the theatre quick. So I'm driving to the theatre going, okay, right, okay, what's 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 our options? What's our options? Right, okay. There was a girl that was on standby for that other character, but maybe she could come in. No, she's in Fife, right? Okay, she's not going to get here for 10 o'clock. Okay, what's my other options? What's my other options? Okay, could the stage manager maybe read from the book? Can we do... No, 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 we've not got enough crew. No, we can't cover that. So just as I'm pulling up to the theatre and still trying to work through in my head, what is our fallback plan? What's our fallback plan? Because we didn't have any understudies in place. I come into the technical office and the entire stage management team are standing there just looking at me. And I knew at that moment in time, I was the plan. As the director, Cora was the only person who knew the show well enough to fill the part. She went on stage in a musical that she had not prepared for with only a few minutes notice. I don't know about you, but that is literally my worst nightmare. I could not do that. But sometimes... When we're in a bind and everything's against us, we just have to step up to the plate and do what we have to do, no matter what the circumstances. It happens to all of us, even my boss, Rufus Norris, director of the National Theatre. As a director, I know that sometimes 
when something goes wrong, a director has to step in during the first few shows. I wonder if that something like that has ever happened to you. Yeah, it has. Yeah, it's happened several times. I did. I did a production of um, Cabaret several times, and uh, and one of the times we started at Southampton at the um, uh, Mayflower, uh, which is a big fifteen hundred seat theatre. And this was uh, Will Young playing the MC, and a great cast of people. Sean Phillips was in it, and also London Road was finishing its second run here in the Olivier. So I was going to come back and watch London Road on the Friday night. So uh, on the Thursday after we'd finished our working afternoon, I thought, right, now I'm going to go and have a curry, and I'm going to have a pint with my curry and then I'm going to watch the show and then I'm going to get on a train because I can't even give the actors notes I'll just you know it, it, we, my work was sort of done but I thought I'd see one last show so I went to the curry house had a curry you know 6 o'clock 6.30 had uh, had um, a pint and and then they brought me a double you know uh, shot at the end which was nice of them so you know so I'd effectively had you know had my four units and I thought, I oh, know, I'll go back to the hotel, have a lie down for half an hour, and then I'll go and see the show because I was feeling a little bit heady. And I went down, and as I hit the, as I lay down in my hotel, the phone went, and the guy playing one of the lead parts, who's the who's the young writer um, in cabaret, had uh, he'd, he'd torn all the ligaments in his knee uh, at the half. Anyway, so at quarter past seven, I was at, uh, I was I was backstage getting fitted up. Our understudy hadn't had a chance to learn the show at all. Um, and I went on half-paced, singing duets with Will Young, uh, snogging various members of the company who I'd been directing even that afternoon. Uh, you know, I was the wrong uh, sexual persuasion. I was 20 years too old. I couldn't dance. I can't sing. It was, it, it was, uh, it was glorious. Why... Like, what's the logic behind? You're the only person that can do it. I guess is that it's, it was that or close the show. It was that or not not do the show. Yeah. And what you've <laughs> got to remember is there are 1,500 people who had come for one reason, and that is Will Young. As long as Will Young's going on stage, uh, they were happy. And of course, you know, Will Will's fantastic, and the chance to, you know, he said, "There's no question about it. You've got to get on." And I can't wait for our duet. <laughs> yeah. When we started talking to people for this episode, we realised this kind of thing happens a little bit more than we thought. Ben Power tends to be involved in shows here as a playwright or as a dramaturg, not as an actor. I understand something peculiar happened to you during Husbands and Sons. Yes, so Husbands and Sons was a show that I made with Marianne Elliott and I wanted to do something with these three D.H. Lawrence plays and we came up with this new uh, way of treating them where they were all woven together it was incredibly complex it was highly theatrical and it went on and it was great and I was really proud of it and I loved going to see it and it was in the Dorfman which means that there are no understudies one of the actors in Husbands and Sons uh, was sick Phil McGinley who was playing uh, the electrician lover of Anne-Marie Duff's uh, miner's wife we found out at sort of lunchtime that Phil wasn't going to be able to play in that evening's performance. Uh, so, terrible shame. It's all sold. It's a sold-out show. Terrible shame, but we have to cancel. I, I said. Uh, now, what I didn't know at that point was that Rufus Norris, my boss, has got form with not cancelling shows when actors are ill. And when he directed uh, the tour of Cabaret, he ended up being on opposite 
uh, Will Young for a week. He, Rufus, was playing a part in the show for a week because an actor was ill and there wasn't an understudy. Uh, He told us this story and only said he was on for one night. You should do some research to find out which of us is telling the truth. I think he definitely did more than one performance and he really enjoyed it. Immediately, immediately, he came up to me and he said, you've got to do it. I said, no, no. So we spent the afternoon ringing up every actor who was in the National Theatre... Uh, ensemble who didn't re- the, in the rep at that time who didn't have a show that night asking them if they would go on with the script and play film again in these part none of them would do it Rufus was just standing there in the corner of the ring going you're doing it you're doing it like, absolutely not I used to act I acted at university and at school and I stopped because I was terrible it was really clear to me <laughs> I got into playwriting and dramaturgy because I wanted to work in the theatre and I couldn't act so it is absolutely clear to me that I was not going on as Anne-Marie Duff's electrician lover in that evening's performance of Husbands and Sons. But then Rufus spoke to Marianne and Marianne seemed to think it wasn't a terrible idea, which I thought was disastrous. Uh, and I got taken down to tell the company that I was going to do it. And they looked they looked amused and some of them, they were pleased that it wasn't being cancelled. Anne-Marie looked rightly very, very worried about the situation. And I started rehearsing and I rehearsed for an hour and blocked the moves <laughs> And tried to decide whether I was going to do it in an accent because the whole play is set in a very particular part of on the Nottinghamshire Derbyshire border where they have a very specific accent that they've all spent months learning how to do. And it's written in that you can't avoid it. And and actually, I started to get quite swept up in it and I quite enjoyed the rehearsal. And I went and I shared a dressing room with some of the uh, some of the guys who were in the company. And I put on the blue electrician's boiler suit and I was taking photos of myself in the mirror and sending them to my friends and my wife and I was feeling really good about it and then just before I went uh, we went down to the stage everyone banged on the windows in the dressing room block <laughs> like they do on first nights the famous national theatre tradition and I was in tears I couldn't believe it I was finally going to get on stage at the national it's amazing all my university school dreams of being an actor was like swelling within me and then we went down into the Dorfman and everything changed and the company suddenly were off because they were in their own focused attentive moment and suddenly it was sort of pats on the back and have a good one and they were gone and I was standing there in the dark underneath the Dorfman stage listening to Marianne give quite an awkward speech about how the writer was going to go on with the script to play a part and how sorry she was for the audience (laughs) Uh, and the light goes green and you're up this ramp and out uh, into the onto the stage into the Dorfman and then I sort of shouted my first line so overexcited and terrible it was awful as the evening went on I relaxed a bit more and I enjoyed it I mean I'm sure I was terrible but I mean I by the end I loved it and when I took my bow I was feeling like eight foot tall but um I think it was probably pretty horrific for the audience (laughs) so that's the story of when I went on in Husbands and Sons We've all had times when we've had to put our minds to tasks where we feel completely out of our depth. The thing that gives me the most heart about Ben's story is the company around him being so supportive. When things start to go wrong, we often rely on the people around us to get through even the trickiest situations. Earlier this summer, we spoke to Kush Jumbo about this same thing, while she was appearing in a show here, which also starred, coincidentally, Anne-Marie Duff. Me and Anne-Marie were talking the other day about how... Because, I mean, our show is very physical. There's a lot of fighting in it. And and in the moment, sometimes you, you end up doing something by accident where you're terrified for the other person, like what you've just done, but you have to keep talking. And you're you're trying to eyeball read the other person to know if what you 
if they're hurt or if they're actually okay. I remember when I was doing As You Like It with an actress called Kelly Hotton, who's amazing, and we were having this like comedy fight in the um, in the letter scene, and um, we have this comedy fight, and we're rolling around on the floor. And I was supposed to slam my hand on the floor on the letter, but instead I slammed my hand on her boob. And we're rolling around on the floor. And so I go, and we're going, you know, Shakespeare, 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 Shakespeare. And I, and I go, slam in her boob. And I suddenly completely drop out of character and go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And she goes, it's fine. And then we continued, and the whole audience just went bonkers. Because it's just in that split second, your real brain like is like, oh, like, are you okay? Um, but But then you just, you just slip back in again and we we it just happens so fast um but i haven't had any i haven't had any really bad mishaps um I mean, that's quite an impressive story because you something something did go wrong and you literally dropped out of character but yeah, then the, you just the impressive the, thing is that you then went back in it, straight that's, away that's what was what really freaked me out the way your body can just kind of like you know do that um but yeah i mean Anne-Marie kicked me over on stage the other night and um like I, she, I, I kicked over, and she said she heard my neck click when I went over. And she's, she's like, she's screaming really angry words at me, but she was like stroking me with her hands, like, "Are you okay? It's just spine broken." But she was like yelling at me, like "You whore!" Like yelling at me. But she's like stroking me with her hands, and we were just laughing about how your body just has to kind of go against your mind in the moment. Um, uh, but yeah, you. It is that old that old phrase of the show must go on. You just do. You you come on without the knife. You're going to stab someone with you. You just use your two fingers and you just believe it. And you, you know, our gun didn't go off the other night. And we just looked at each other. And then I yelled in pain and fell to the floor. And we sold it. You just sell it. That's the great thing about acting. If the props don't work, you can just make it up. Of course, that only works if something that should happen doesn't. If something which shouldn't happen does happen, that's another story. We were doing Troilus and Cressida in uh, Trevor's first season up in the Olivier Theatre. And the guy who played Hector was huge. And um, he injured his back and had to go off. His understudy was not six foot eight. He was a lot smaller. Um, now, Hector... Uh, obviously is famous for being slain in Troilus and Cressida and this great big guy used to be laying back onto a uh, a large shield and then by use of his legs he was dragged off to the back of the Olivier. Now the set was a palisade um, it was swing doors with wooden posts between each one. I mean it looked it looked some, like something out of you know time team circa I don't know 10th century and um it was on a huge orange poppadom. It was a great big round orange floor. And uh, the understudy was dutifully slain when he should have been. And one actor grabbed one leg, one grabbed the other. And there was a little bit of confusion because the guy was a lot smaller than the original. And they used to drag him off through one of these swing doors. Unfortunately, this night, one went one side of the post. The other went the other side of the post. You heard the scream in the circle. And suddenly Hector lived again only to double up and the whole the whole of the Olivier Theatre was crying with laughter and they finally dragged him off through the door and he did dance around um, both his legs for a little while it was hysterical if slightly painful I can't even that's true our episode's about uh, disaster, failure, things going wrong 
what lessons or principles do you think people out there could learn from your role as a stage manager and how you cope with the unexpected? Prepare for everything and then expect what you haven't prepared for. And then that way, you just... Um, and remain calm when it happens. The important thing is being calm. Yeah. And I can imagine that calmness is in very short supply when, in a high-pressure situation, something amiss happens. Oh, And absolutely. being the person that everyone looks at. Calmness, I think, is one of the main things you must offer people. Absolutely. But, but also, I think, good humour. And I don't mean make a joke out of a tragedy... But if you can keep people enjoying themselves, because an actor can stop enjoying playing a part after 35, 40 performances, you've got to be a real people's person. You've got to be able to um, enjoy the pressure and turn it to the advantage of yourself, the show, and everyone else. And come in with a smile on your face and just go, I work at the National Theatre. I asked Andrew for a worst-case scenario. What would be the worst possible thing at the worst possible time? Press night of uh, the History Boys in the Littleton Theatre. We had a 7 o'clock up. Do we have a 7 o'clock? 7.15. That's the original History Boys. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Original, original. Used to be 7.45 up. So it was probably a 7.15 press night, because they're always early, so they can get their copy in. And at about 6 o'clock, I walked onto the stage... And I thought, it's misty in here. And I looked up into the fly tower and I could see a cloud just hanging in the fly tower. And of course, it was a little bit of smoke, but mainly the sprinklers had already gone off and the water was falling. And as I stood there, I, as I opened my mouth, I got soaked. The sprinklers went off over the whole stage. And... Um, I immediately phoned and said, turn off the sprinklers, we're soaking the stage, you've got press night, blah blah Whoops. Everyone came running, and we spent a very long time clearing up the water. The whole of the lighting rig was drenched, the floor was drenched. Luckily, most of the props were pushed farther further off, so it was the stage area. We went up around about, I think about quarter to nine. I don't know. I haven't seen the show report since that night. It was completely soaked. We'd cleaned it up. Everyone turned up. It was amazing. The National Theatre really pulled together and got that show on that night. In fact, I remember a couple of the cast who had sort of multiple family in from all over the country in tears going, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I said, it will. Just just calm down. It'll be all right. We'll, we'll, we'll get it on. And... Um, I wasn't stage manager at that time. It was Trish Montemiro, but we kept it together and it was a monumental uh, effort. We got it on and it seemed to go all right. <laughs> yeah, I've heard good things about the History Boys. I heard it went down quite well. Uh, yeah, just a bit. <laughs> Great reviews and five star everywhere and it, the rest is History Boys. Hey. Being a stage manager is a very specific job. Yeah. Do you ever think about what, if you didn't work in theatre, what you would be doing? Yes. Um, I, I can't imagine not doing what I do. One is helping realise plays on stage that will live forever. You just get to work on the world's best 
theatre. The crew here, the technicians here are fabulous and everyone wants it to be right. And when it goes wrong, you can bet your bottom dollar they are working overtime to get it right at that moment. Mm. And if it's an overnight fix, I mean, the amount of nights that have been lost to make sure things are fine. But, you know, we put on a lot of plays here, so invariably things will go wrong. But this is not the norm. And even when, you know, the sky falls in, you go, well, at least it's the National Theatre sky, it's this show's sky, and we'll rebuild it for tomorrow night, and it'll be fine. It's a joy. There's nothing better. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Seriously. Not everything in life goes according to plan. Accidents happen to everyone in every walk of life. Nobody's perfect and we all make mistakes. When they happen, you just have to get up and deal with them and try not to let them get you down. If you're having a bad day, I hope you'll think of that story about the History Boys and picture a young James Corden, Dominic Cooper, Russell Tovey and all the rest of the cast mopping a stage for an hour and a half. Stuff goes wrong sometimes, even to movie stars. That's it for our show today. I've had a blast. I hope you have too. I'm sure you all have stories about times you've seen stuff go wrong on stage. Please share them with us. We'd love to hear them. Especially if you were in Southampton and saw Rufus Norris duet with Will Young. I have to hear how that was. You can talk to us on Twitter with the hashtag NTPodcast and find us there and on Facebook and Instagram at National Theatre. I'm on Twitter at Samuel Sedgman. Please get in touch and tell us what you thought of the show. If you want to show your appreciation, please take the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us rise in the charts and helps new people find the show. It really does make a difference and we're grateful for all the ones you've given us so far, so please do keep them coming. As ever, this episode was produced and edited by the incomparable Emma Reedy and was presented and co-produced by me, the very comparable Sam Sedgman, with support from our lovely social content editor, Nick Mulligan. Our executive producer was Kate Moore and our music was by Alex Painter. A huge thank you to the legendary Andrew Speed for sitting down with us for this episode and to all the rest of our contributors from throughout the series so far. We're going to be taking a break for a few weeks while we work on some new stories. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, do get in touch and let us know. We are always on the hunt for new ideas, and if you have one, please do tell us. But for now, that's everything. Have a great day, and I'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.